Hello there, and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network with me, Jarlath Regan. I hope you enjoy this extract from maybe my favorite episode of all time, the Gary Lightbody episode. This is just a small section of what is almost a 90-minute interview, and you can hear the whole thing and more deep-dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people, musicians, athletes, and figures ever to have left our shores, along with other series, including Irishman in America with Marion McKeown, our true crime series, Irishman Behind Bars, and lots, lots more. It's all available to you at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Let me tell you, it'll take a minute to sign up and for less than a fiver, you'll gain access to the lot. And you'll also be able to walk around with a spring in your step, knowing that you helped this series survive and grow through these difficult times. Our chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. Now, Jigsaw are a very special charity. They are a youth mental health charity that works to provide and equip young people in Ireland with the mental health skills they will need to survive in life. Since the pandemic, they've seen a 400% jump in demand for their services. Obviously, their one-to-one and group services are immense. I've seen the impact they have. Why not go over, visit jigsaw.ie, see if they can help you, maybe someone in your life, or maybe through a small regular donation, you can help them. That's jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Jonathan Rigo! Gary Lightbody, thank you so much for doing the Irishman Abroad. It Pleasure. Is, it is uh, obviously a busy time for you, but I feel like you guys relish the chance to talk about this. You specifically must feel immense pride when it comes to this album, maybe more so than any other album. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, 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 I've never been more proud of anything I've, I've done in my life um, for a number of reasons, but... Yeah, I thought when I finished the record, I thought it was going to be very hard to talk about, um, but it's actually been quite easy, and it's been a bit of a revelation, actually, because I have I finally feel free of everything that was holding me back. Mm. There are no... Secrets might be the wrong word, um, but things that I'd held back from, from, even from my close friends, now that everything's out on the table... Yeah. Now that I've told everybody that I love everything that's going on yeah. in my head, that there's nothing else that I can be afraid of, you know? Yeah, and there's a liberation in that. And I think in the in the voiceover to introduce this interview, I'll have explained to people the kind of genesis of this piece. But it strikes me, and I've always felt when it comes to Snow Patrol, that the story of you guys is a story of not giving up. Mm. 
Which was harder, not giving up in the 10 lean years or not giving up in the last seven when you had your own personal struggle? That is the best question anyone has asked. What an incredibly great question that is. Um, allow me to endeavor, yeah, time. to endeavor to answer it properly. In the first 10 years, as you say, from 94 to next year will be our 25th anniversary, um, to 2004, um, we didn't have any hits. And uh, for the first few years of that, it killed me. You know, it, 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 it caused me pain that we weren't... I thought the minute that we released our first EP uh, in 90, the end of 94, um, and even though it was just a bunch of friends, and, you know, like a small amount of people, I just assumed that somebody would find it. Somebody mm-hmm. would go, right, we need to sign these guys up to a big record label and then world domination by, you know, on my desk by next Tuesday morning. It's the idealism of youth. Exactly, and I just had no... I, I didn't have any other thoughts in my head. It was just we were going to be massive, and that was it. And then that didn't happen, and it hurt because I had a massive ego. And then over the years, over that 10 years, that ego gets sort of gradually sanded down. And uh, I'm so grateful for those 10 years because I would have been insufferable if I had a, if we had a, had a hit in those first few years. Um, and also it would be over. It mm. would be over now. Yeah, we wouldn't have had anything last. to back it up. We wouldn't have had any life experience to draw on to actually write you know, things from the heart. Yeah. And we weren't at that time even. I just was blinded by the fact that this is what I wanted and everything else would fall into place. Before we get to the, the nub of that answer then of whether that was harder than what you've just lived through, maybe can we talk a little bit about the sanding down of that ego? Because within the struggle of creating this piece is the understanding that the ego was false and that the ego was a facade. It was an overcompensation for the pain or hurt that might have been underneath it. Do you feel that or do you feel that you just really thought, I'm fucking brilliant? And oh, the no, world there was, there was an this. awful lot of self-loathing, uh, 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 you know, that, that was tied up in that as well. Um, and uh, what would happen was that those two would sort of duel with each other, that I would have these sort of um, almost kind of like bipolar kind of thing where I would have this kind of grandiose delusions uh, one minute and then the next minute I would just be in this sort of ball on the floor crushed by, you know, unfulfilled ambition. Um, so it would be a, kind of a roller coaster. And yeah, that went on <laughs> way, way too long, probably. And it's tough because every time you go low, there's nothing for you to go to bring you back up. There's no success to point at and go, yeah, but I do have that thing. Mm. You're still going, there's still no yeah. no hits here. When you write Final Straw, I get the feeling that you really thought, well, this is the roll of the dice. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why we call the album that. I mean, it, it was it was as pointed as that. And it was, you know, in, in, in a way, I regret calling the album that because it shows a pissiness that was unnecessary. But um, also, we released the, that album in August, I think, of 2003. And it, in between August and December... 
It sold the same amount of copies as the first two albums. Roughly 7,000 each. Roughly 7,000 each. That's so hard for people uh, to believe now. It was 14,000 that had sold, actually, just nearly 15,000 that had sold by December. So that was... We were very close to getting dropped from the label, probably, you know, like I would imagine. How are your moms and dads in that moment? Are they going, time to look at a job? Yeah. Oh, long before then. Long before then. My mum and dad were probably up to high dough, as my mum says, uh, worrying about me just not being, you know, I mean, I was sleeping on, at that time and for a few years before it, I was sleeping on fl- friends' couches and, um, you know, like we were sleeping on the back of the uh, of the, the van mm-hmm. um, on top of the gear after gigs or we were asking members of the audience, of which were sparse, and thank you, by the way, anybody that was at those early shows, <laughs> all four of you. If we could sleep, you know, in their living rooms, you know, and very often. ask the audience. I'd ask the, the audience from the, through the microphone. I would say, you know, is that, would anybody have a place that we could keep tonight? And somebody would come up to us after the show every night. And that's the beauty of it. We'd actually meet, you know, we'd make friends along the way. We'd meet mm. people that were just lovely enough to just go, yeah, come and crash at ours. And the inevitable party and the passing round of the acoustic guitar would happen. And, we, you know, we'd, we'd, there'd be a lot of fun nights. Yeah, so there was... A lot of fun being had, but there wasn't there wasn't any you know stability mm. zero, and it was actually the kindness of those strangers and the kindness of some of my uh, close friends who let Simon Cull is a, a very successful uh, film and TV editor um, now and uh, and then and was uh, stable enough to allow me to stay in his house for free for so many years. <laughs> really? so, yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I, uh, I owe him and many other people a lot. Uh, well, I mean, financially, I've remunerated them, but <laughs> I still owe them, I still owe them uh, great gratitude. So, yeah, so, you know, those years were a hell of a lot of fun. But, they, you know, my, my parents and friends, school friends, although I do have some, some people that I meet that I went to school with still that go, are you still in that wee band? <laughs> That's such a such an Irish thing to do. Are you still flogging that dead animal? I mean, I, I it's I don't know if I said this at the start, but I'm a, a stand up myself, so I've I've had the the bleak times, and I certainly felt like lost in them, like really lost in that I I'd forgotten what it whoa what do we start this for in, in the beginning, mm. and. Then when something positive happens, like I didn't have the equivalent of Joe Wiley playing Mm. my song in full and the phone lines lighting up like what happened to you. But there's a light that comes on. There's a real sense of, you know, you start to picture your movie playing out and then this happened. The whirlwind that occurs for you is it it's much more than happens nowadays where it's a gradual kind of build it must have felt like a truck hitting you going from what you're describing there begging people to stay in their houses to now being kind of regarded as inverted commas the hottest thing yeah we, we yeah we went literally from we played a show as i've talked about it before uh, we played a show in high wickham to seven people in december 2003 and in march 2004 the album single had charted in the top five Run, this is, and the album Final Straw both charted in the top five, and we were playing the Shepherd's Bush Empire, our biggest gig ever. Three months day. later. Three months later. 
So it went, and then it just, you know, then you play Brixton Academy, and then you play Wembley Arena, and then you play, you know, O2, and it just kept building and building. So we're at that point of discussing what you've described as the cycle of tour album, tour album, tour album, that will eventually drive any person crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it will. And, you know, that not to, obviously, to, to not to say that it wasn't extraordinarily uh, fun and, um, you know, amazing to see the world. But it was also, I mean, it, like the Eyes Open tour on its own was two years, you know, nonstop. And, you know, there was six tours of the US in that, one of, them, one of which was a 10-week tour. And any musician... That's that, that's listening. Will will know what a ten week nonstop tour does to your brain. You know, you you kind of disconnect from the world in a way. You speak to each other in a series of kind of clicks and whistles and barks. And and like anybody you come home to after that tour will not be able to understand what you're saying. It is almost like you you like you regress into a kind of primal primal state like you're verbally. not exaggerating this no no it's 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 true it happened to all of it like we'd come back and we'd be like going <laughs> beep, beep. and our girlfriends would be like what has happened to you guys <laughs> i mean i've i think uh, like i obviously love a, a good rock documentary i don't know about you i know you're a fan of the oh, yeah. book documentary on oh, netflix yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this is something that's talked about a lot this kind of vortex of the tour and how you all go through your own kind of breakdown at different times and mm-hmm. you start to respect each other's breakdown and in a weird kind of way it's an understanding that we're all in the middle of this cycle of crumbling and rebuilding yeah but after a tour uh, album tour album and you feel it happening what's the urge to go again if you can feel this happening to you well, there, 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 you know, there is the, the, the slightly sort of disheartening answer, which is that you don't know how to do anything else. But there's also the thing where the, the other side of that particular coin, which is the will, the will to do the thing you love. Like it's just an, it's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. speaking of primal, it is just an urge. I can't, I, I, I can't go too long. And it might have seemed like the last seven years, you know, we've been sort of off the radar, but I, I've been making music pretty much constantly over the last seven years. I can't do anything else and I don't want to do anything else. Mm. So there is that drive. And also you sort of feel like, you know, the advice that you're given by, rec- not the record label and the management would you know, be pushing you into the ground, but they'd also be sort of reminding you that, you know, it's a fickle business. Mm-hmm. People forget it can all easily. go away. It can all yeah. go, you know, strike while they aren't hot. All these old tired, worn cliches that you kind of fear leaving it too long mm. and you know it was only when we got to the la- the very end of the last tour which was 2012 and the very end of that well 2011-12 and then the very end of that tour was an American tour that we all like I don't think the guys on mind me telling you this that we were we you know we weren't really speaking to each other we weren't really connected the gigs were not our best apologies to the fans that were at those gigs I, th- I don't know if they would even have noticed maybe I mean they were still good mm. gigs but they were not our best gigs um, and that was because we had maybe checked out a little mentally 
Really? Um, yeah, we we just got to the end of our end of our tethers. And so you aren't fighting actively. We're not fighting. It's more sort of sick of being around each other. Sick of being. I don't even know that it was a being around each other because I have a deep love for all those, you know, all the guys in the band. I, I, it's it's. You know the thing that I'm afraid of about flying? It's not flying itself. It's somebody else being in control of my destiny. <laughs> you just get yeah. this sort of... Just this like, one guy. Just this one guy that, you know... And you say, well, it's all autopilot. I'm like, that doesn't make me feel any better. Um, and uh, it's, it's this... And I guess autopilot bring, comes into it too. It's like you get into autopilot and you have no control of your own destiny. You know, both those things are at play. Mm. You feel like you are now sort of woven into the fabric of something that isn't that you have no control over anymore and the only thing you can do to take control is by stepping out of it and that's maybe not how i had was thinking about it at the time because my brain wasn't working so it was just i think it was instinctive and we have to stop for a while i think we all we all decided that we stopped for a while. i mean you know it's very telling that we all went off and did different things immediately I went to Tired Pony again. Nathan started a band. Nathan started another band. You know, that is pretty telling yeah. that, you know, like he wants to be doing music, but he doesn't want to be doing it with us. Yeah, and yeah. that is, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm not speaking out of term, Nathan, and I've spoken about all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, when Johnny started a publishing company, Johnny McDay was already writing with lots of different people. He went, you know, back to doing that. And Pablo started writing and producing a lot of people as well. So and joined another band uh, with uh, um, um, Nate Mandel from the Foo Fighters, called Lieutenant. So I mean, everybody went off and did things within music. It's just we didn't do things with each other, and it took us a little while to circle back to one another. What did you do? I moved to LA. I had a grand idea. Film is my second passion. I, I you know, I've always wanted to be involved in some capacity mm. I knew my acting skills weren't going to get me there but I thought maybe I could be valuable making soundtracks or whatever so I I had the the same idea that 99% of people that want to be in the film industry have which is to move to LA show and up try and find you know a way in and I did it in a very kind of traditional and also looking back on it kind of foolhardy way to begin with which I went in I got I took meetings I used Snow Patrol's name to take meetings with all the big studios yeah I'm aware of these meetings and how little they mean in terms of comedians and how there's a lot of like stereotypical Hollywood waffle you're goddamn right it was <laughs> it was a smoke show of epic proportions love um, the album yeah, Gary yeah. oh I went into one of those meetings and all uh, six at the time six Snow Patrol albums were fanned out on the desk oh. in front wow. of me all okay. of them still in the cellophane <laughs> oh wow brilliant somebody like, go down to the store and yeah. get the albums don't take them out of the cellophane <laughs> we can bring them back <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we're returning these yeah. um and uh, so I uh, went in, took a bunch of meetings, and they all said, yeah, you know, you will keep you in mind for our next project, and then never got another phone call or email from anybody. Simplicity. Obviously, that's just the way it works. I didn't know that at the time. It was so green. And what ended up happening was I stayed, 
and started to make some friends there and most of them were actually in the film industry or the music industry and and uh, over time you just bump into people that then mm. that then ask you to make some music for their movie it's it's normally it's this sort of happenstance kismet kind of thing that just uh, happens if you put yourself in the right places and i just uh, started to write for films and tv and music for films and tv and uh, also did quite a lot of co-writes with people you know taylor swift and ed sheeran and one direction and all those those guys that you know and we you know those songs ended up on albums but there was plenty of ones that you know i did co-writes for that didn't end up on albums you know i get the impression when you're talking about it and i don't think it's a leap to say this that like with this stuff that you've just produced like you you open a vein and go here i am more than you have ever before but it, I get the feeling that even by the distance and the way you look when you're talking about those things, that you're not giving of yourself in the same way when you're writing for those things. And um, it yeah, can you might, feel a you, bit you hollow. You might be right. It's hard. I think it's, not, it's nothing to do with the people. Certainly it's nothing to do with the people that were just mentioned. And Ed um, and, and I and, uh, are, and Ed and all of us are very close. And it's a joy to work with him. But it is somebody else's record and you have to let them lead the way. And if yeah. they don't lead the way, then that's, it's, it's difficult. Mm. I don't want to put words in somebody else's mouth. I want them to try and find what they want to write about first and then I'll help them right. if they need help okay. to finish the lyrics or a melody or whatever. Like that. that's, that's my approach. I want them to feel ownership of the, th- the songs that they're singing because I think taking that from someone is a, is, is a crime. You, know? you want to be standing on stage feeling that these are your weapons you're mm-hmm. using not 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 somebody else's and uh in my own writing for snow patrol uh, you know that that's what i want and that's what i give i give myself and i want to help the people that when i co-write with them give themselves so yeah that's the difference the thing that precipitates the beginning of this album is a sinus infection you know <laughs> yeah. like, it's it seems like like you, you talk about happenstance and you know just pure luck but if you hadn't gotten sick in the way you had and they hadn't suggested surgery and you said I'd rather go to this Gabrielle Hammond, uh, Hammond <clears throat> do you ever think about where you might be right now? No I'd known Gabrielle a long, a, a long time before that um, and I'd seen her for various things and we, we were very, very good friends but but yeah when when the and I had a sinus infection and an ear infection and an eye infection all at the same time and I was just a mess and it was alcohol and drugs related you know it was a build up of years of not taking care of myself properly and yeah they, the doctor said we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna uh, operate and I was like no you're not no, no you're why not. why no because most people will be like whatever you say doc what's well I, get it's me funny because I, I I went to one doctor and then I said um, I said what what effect is it gonna have on my singing voice and he said none at all and I was like okay and I went to a, get a second opinion and that doctor said yeah it could have an effect it could have an, it could have an effect. We have to crack the nose open and go in that way. Oh my god! It's a serious it's a serious operation. 
And Gabrielle had been away at that time, which is why I hadn't been speaking to her about it. And uh, when she got back to LA, I went to see her and she was like, thank God you didn't go and get surgery. Give me a month. I'll do acupuncture. We'll change your lifestyle. You know, no more drinking. You have to stop now for this. And I was like, okay, sort of reluctantly. <laughs> reluctantly. I didn't know how I was going to stop. Because Is I was that reluctantly every because, as you've said in other interviews, by US standards, you were an alcoholic, but by Irish standards, you were a, just a pretty good drinker. I was a, I was a very good drinker. But the difference, I suppose, in, the, uh, in uh, even in Irish standards, I think I was, I was getting, I was getting up to, up to kind of like level one. <laughs> right. Um, and. Uh, the, the the problem or one of the problems was that I'd shifted into from social drinking into solo drinking mm. and that's that that was a shift that I'd never made before and it was the virtue of living in LA everyone else is really healthy yeah and I couldn't kids. find yeah a drinking partner a regular drinking partner two days a week maybe but not five, seven days a week so the two days a week I was social and the other five days I was um, out by myself and I wasn't like out by myself I'm very wary of ever being that guy in the mm. bar on his own that mm. talks to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. That guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be that guy. So I just kept myself to myself. I'd, you know, I'd go to a bar that was showing some sport and I would watch, watch the that. baseball or football yeah. or American football or whatever. And I would, I would drink and, you know, sure, what's the harm in that? And, you know, of course, it's a, it's a build-up. And is there things. a part of you at that time thinking, well, I deserve this. I've had a long, tough run. I'm kind of on holidays. It's sunny out. Yeah. Right? Is this, this feeding into it? Uh, five years after the last... Well, no, no, sorry. This was four years after the last No Patrol gig. So okay, I'd so been it's a good long holiday. Yeah, I'd been on holiday for a while <laughs> at that point. Um, but, you yeah, know, Gabrielle said, give me a month. She, we did acupuncture three times a week. And I went back to the same doctor uh, that told me that I couldn't get rid of it any other way other than surgery. I got him to do another CT scan, and my sinuses were clear. Unbelievable! It's un like it is unbelievable because I people in my life who are suffering with it too, and have had you know teeth extracted and they've you know removed lumps of things, and this worked. It works. I've been very fortunate to to have met a few extraordinary acupuncturists in my time, but I've also been to ones that haven't been good. And I understand that some people have those experiences and only have those experiences and therefore go, well, acupuncture doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. It's total bollocks. Yeah. If you go to the right people, it works in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine. My very first experience with it, I went, I'd, I'd had eczema my whole life really bad on all my joints um, and uh, and it was it was always kind of bloody and scratched because I would scratch it in my sleep yeah, and um, yeah. I, I'd have it on my scalp as well and I, I, I just I got to, I'd used all the medicated shampoos I'd used all the t cool tar baths and all the yeah, things yeah, yeah. that you sort of use in western kind of stuff and I, by the way I'm not against western medicine at all I think they, they work sure but tandem. you tried it all yeah uh, but um, we were living in Glasgow at the time, so we were living in Glasgow, and I walked past a Chinese uh, medical center on my way to the studio every day, and I would always kind of scoff at the picture in the window that yeah, we the before and after, yeah. you know, the guy's got the arm, the sleeve of eczema, and then the other picture's like no eczema, but you can sort of see the outline, you think, Photoshop, and, you know, like, I, you know, every day, and then there was one 
particular day that I was just literally felt like fire ants were just crawling over my skin and I just thought I can't I was 26 maybe I'd had it my whole life and I just thought I can't I have to do something different and I just walked in and I, I went in and it was this as a, a girl a Chinese girl behind the counter she spoke English and then a Chinese an old or Chinese gentleman and he didn't speak any English and she he was the acupuncturist and she interpreted so he sat down, he took my pulses immediately. I was like in the door and 30 seconds later, I was getting a, a te- a, like an exam and I'm like, what the fuck's just happened? I I've, I've, been, I've been kidnapped. Uh, you know, I'm getting an exam and, and she's, he's going, you know, you're too hot and all this. And I'm going, thanks very much. Um, and uh, he, he goes, we go down. Then she goes, go with him. And we go down this these very steep, rickety stairs into this sort of... Uh, room and it has there it is that's just the beginning to hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length irish man abroad episodes and shows join us on patreon.com forward slash irish man abroad help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come for less than a five or a month you'll gain access to all our episodes shows live events and for a limited time only everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of august will get my brand new stand-up comedy special notions 11 shot by my favorite director mike donnelly in vicar street in march 2020 that's hundreds of hours of entertainment inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.